0: My name is Kim Weeks, and this is The Weeks Well. So for those who follow this podcast, Paul Grilly likely needs not a lot of introduction. If you don't know about Paul Grilly, I am so excited for you to learn about him in this conversation on this podcast. For those who have followed his work or have studied with him, I'm just so delighted that uh, you get to hear this conversation between us after 15 years. You know, I first contacted Paul Grilly when I was running my yoga studio, Boundless Yoga, which, just like the Weeks Well, was a multidisciplinary conversation in what yoga is, how to look under the hood of the practice for what it's doing to us, why it matters in the body, in the brain, and the breath and how we can be the best practitioners, teachers, and people in the context of the practice because we feel how much it changes us for the better. So Paul Grilly was, and probably still is, (laughs) traveling the country and the world with a suitcase of bones, describing to people, showing them scientifically how it is that every single yoga posture that's been invented in modernity or every single... OG posture, you know, Padmasana, Lotus Pose, for example, is not fully accessible to all. And this conversation explores those that idea in so many different ways. We slice it in so many different ways. But as Paul likes to say, you know, so studies show <laughs> that people's bodies are totally different. And so... External rotation to one person is not what it is to the other. When he introduced the concept of yin yoga, he's so obviously humble about it as being a person at a place, at in a place, at a time, where he was able to revive, revivify the idea that, to say it again, the OG postures that we know about were actually yin in approach the idea of holding a pose for a while to stress the joints and allow the breath to move move and to wait to see what the impact is of this pose on the body-mind complex. He talks about yin yoga as this perfect balance to what has become the yang yoga, you know, complex, which is can be very easily broken down, not into like hot, sweaty X, Y, Z, but more about the physical stressing of the joints, quick jumpings, quick movements, and not so much the long holds that stress the joints, after which those joints can then rejoin the overall flow of prana or chi in the system. So there's a couple things I wanna just sort of pull out as this conversation begins. First, yin yoga combines Eastern, Asian, and South Asian language, thinking, and practice. Dr. Hiroshi Motoyama, a Japanese double doctorate, is the person who really fundamentally helped Paul Grilly and Sarah Powers, who you'll hear later on the podcast this month, think about yin yoga and label it as such. Paul talks about a ton of other amazing thinkers that have influenced him over the to- over the years, and also why it is that he celebrates all kinds of yoga right now, and how fundamentally as we, those of us listening, me talking, Paul conversing with me, think about modern yoga, we are building a bod- body of work that can be explained after some decades of practice, some decades of reflection. Everybody on this podcast has come in with years of practice. So it's worth, you know, kind of circling the wagons around what we're doing here. And I've just got to say that this podcast is one of my favorite of the whole show, because Paul and I, label and name so many things that I'm trying to scratch at in this podcast and to create in terms of our understanding of what modern yoga is and how we can use it to improve the world. I'm going to call this Yin Month. I've got a bunch of other Yin conversations coming up. Sarah Powers in a couple weeks. I'm hoping to have another guy, Bernie Clark, come in even next week, as early as next week. So stay tuned. Let's think of September as in maybe early October as the Yin Month. Uh, as always, Kim Weeks at Weeks Well. Hello at Weeks Well. Either or. Send me your comments and your questions. Enjoy this conversation with Paul Grilly. Paul Grilly, thank you so much for joining me on the Weeks Well. Happy to
1: be here.
0: It's good to reconnect with you after a few years. (laughs) Maybe before we get to some of this deeper work you've done in the last few years, I'd really like to start with your thoughts on what you've offered, what you've brought to the body of modern yoga in the practice and the conceptual framework of yin yoga. It just isn't anything that we had seen before, you and Sarah started teaching, and I've, what I find so interesting about it is that in this unregulated market of yoga, if you sort of scroll through, you know, any yoga studio offerings, Yin is there in every single studio that I see. And now we've got things like Vin Yin and Yin has been kind of consumed and co-opted in other ways. And so one of the main drivers of this podcast and my work over 21 years of teaching and now doing this content work is to put some parameters around what teachers like you have, as you were saying also before we clicked record, assimilated into your own body and therefore your body of teaching.
1: Okay, um, <clears throat> that's pretty broad. Yeah. Um, well, I honestly feel that the reason why yin um, um, is, has blossomed the way that it has and people have adapted it, because I really do think it's just a throwback to pre-published yoga. If you think of, you know, I think of yoga, there wasn't very much of a mass market of anything really until the 40s. But I think since then, um, you know, yoga sort of came of age. um, uh, It's hard to how to put it. I think that most yoga in the old books and the old schools was what we would call yin yoga now. Uh, um, If you look at the oldest books that were in print, and again, there aren't many they were very soft practices. You would do a three or four minute forward bend and you'd get, you'd, you'd have language written, don't strain, stay within your limits. And then after every pose, you had to lie down and relax and Shavasana. And that, uh, and that was reflected in all, I was, you know, in my twenties, I was in LA, I grew up in Montana, but in my twenties, when I was teaching and learning, I was in LA and if you ever went to an ashram or a, a, a traditional school, um, it was the that was the yoga. You know, it was like some soft, gentle person, usually a woman, sometimes a man. Everything that they did was like, oh, it's gentle, it's relaxed, it's do this. It's what we would call yin in spirit, if not in technicality. And it's just interesting to me that right about that time. The, I believe yoga <clears throat> penetrated the <clears throat> Western American consciousness because they flipped the switch and they did power yoga, Bipram yoga, Ashtanga yoga. It's like, oh, this is great. It's hot. It's sweaty. It's sexy. This is amazing. This is athletic. I believe that that, that, uh, that emphasis on athleticism and power and strength and endurance and flexibility was essential to getting people to open their minds to, oh, you mean I don't have to like, you know, put a dot on my head and chant Om while I go to this really quiet class. I can actually just wear sweats and go in and work my body and, and feel the buzz for myself. I think that was an essential part of, of westerners going like oh yeah yoga's a cool thing it's not just it's not it's not physical hinduism it's a thing all by itself it happens to have come from a certain culture but it's a thing all by itself and i think that that was really essential and i was just you know completely lucky to have be my age born when i was and be in la at the time when that took off it's just that when I swung around to <clears throat> doing a softer, gentler practice again, and I say again, because I started with yin yoga, what I would call yin yoga from books. I started that way before I moved to L.A. and got inundated with this, you know, no, it's hot and sweaty and sexy. And I go like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Right. Right. And I think that that's why it's so easy for people to incorporate yin into what they present and what they practice and what they do. Because I really do believe there's a yin and a yang to everything. I think that uh, my contribution, that saying that I popularized yin, you know, that was just an accident. I just think that I was the first guy to come forward with some anatomical and scientific evidence for why you should do it. And that's the second part of of what I, of why I was the popularizer of yin among others like Sarah Powers. And it's because, you know, as Bernie Clark likes to say, studies show that people pay attention to anything that leads with the sentence, studies show. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that is the, and that's the way it should be. It, it yeah. should be, that is what the whole scientific revolution was about. People say studies show X, people will finish the article. If you just spouse your opinion, people... And I just think that I was lucky enough, again, that I read a rather obscure teacher, Dr. Motoyama, talking about fascia and its relationship to the meridians in uh, in um, Chinese medicine and in yoga. And because you know, I was uh, immersed in his teachings and his ideas that I could translate that into this is why yin yoga works. It's also why yang yoga works. This idea that fascia theories only apply to yin is not correct. It's just that fascia theory, its relationship to meridian theory, explains why people developed yoga asanas in the first place. And it was because of its direct effect on the fascia, particularly the fascia around the joints. And so I was lucky enough to sort of like have that just take that from Dr. Motoyama who's the original genius about that and say like look Dr. Motoyama's theories support this old fashioned way of doing yin yoga that's not jump back jump through and do a handstand no I have no critique of yang asana I think it's fantastic I've done it myself for decades but the the the, and the fascia theory I learned from Dr. Motoyama was just easy, hand-in-glove, fit for, well, why should I do yin yoga? Mm-hmm. And it's like it was an easy uh, explanation. Mm-hmm. And so that was the thing of, of how I got out there and was teaching. And I was seen as someone who was sort of against the tide of yang. And in a sense, I was against the tide, but I'm not against Yang Yoga, I'm not saying Yang Yoga is wrong and Yin Yoga is right, it's just that just from a practical standpoint, if once if one side of the yoga equation is being strongly represented in every studio in the country, then why not be a voice for a complementary practice? Just from a pragmatic business standpoint, it'd be like, well, why don't you, why don't you teach that aspect of it? It's just as valid. And it wasn't just a business decision. It was that I'd done yang yoga for 10 years, and uh, I was sore every day. And then when I started to do yin yoga, what's called yin yoga, when I started to do that, i go like, wow, this is great. <laughs> you know? And so it was. Uh, it was for that reason that I came forward popularizing yin yoga. But the third element, and the element that I didn't learn from anybody else, was skeletal variation because you know, I got into yin yoga because I really thought, well, this is the missing element in my practice because there were so many postures I couldn't do, even after years of doing yoga and working very hard at it. I mean, in my when I had the strength and the time, I used to do six hours of yoga a day. then you ran out of strength and you ran out of time. But I was still hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours hours a week and uh, doing yoga. And there were tons of poses I couldn't do. And then when I'm, I'm literally, I'm at the practice now about 20 years from 78 to 1998. And then I discovered, became aware of skeletal variation. I didn't discover skeletal variation. Anthropologists and orthopedic surgeons have known it forever. But I became aware of skeletal variation and I became aware of, oh, my God, this is why I will never do this or that. And this is why students I've tried to help will never do what's easy for me. And so that was my that was my original contribution. Yin yoga. That's been around forever. It's just been called different names. Fascia theory and, and, and meridian theory, I took right from Motoyama. I just pulled that out and put it down because I didn't know anything about it. But becoming aware of skeletal variation and taking the research of other people and, and saying this explains why certain poses are easy for some people and impossible for others, that gave me a unique niche. Because now I was, I was presenting an anatomical presentation of yoga that was strongly anatomical, um, more than most programs, because you needed to have enough anatomical understanding to appreciate why what's easy for someone could be injurious for someone else. And that flew in the face of almost everything. That flew in the face of yang styles of yoga, yin styles of yoga, because the implication was, if not expressly written, and usually expressly written, the implication was breathe, relax, open your chakras, you'll do all these poses. Go back and read the books from those eras that are still in print. That is either explicitly stated or it's implied. And so that's when I sort of became the nail that stuck out of the board that everyone could see. I don't think yin yoga offended anybody. I don't think fascia theory, you know, made people light up. But when I started publishing pictures and talking and preaching, uh, look, there's skeletal variation. Not everyone can do all these poses. That made a lot of people aware of me. And that's how I sort of became more up front. I wasn't a better yin yoga teacher, but insisting on skeletal variation as being very important that it's not just a little thing over here by putting it front and center to understanding how asana works that kind of that's the equivalent of standing out in front of a crowd and doing this
0: totally i mean you also carried a suitcase of bones around
1: <laughs> well that was all part of it i mean if you didn't bring a suitcase full of bones people wouldn't them believe, you. Yeah. About, no believe you yeah no one's going to believe you
0: I was in a class with you in Richmond, Virginia, where I took my entire teacher training program down there to study with you, and there was a woman, You know, it was an open workshop, so it was us and then other groups, and a woman there just, she, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered this on a regular basis, she just wouldn't, I mean, all the evidence was in front of her, and she was like, this is not, this can't be true, because I've been taught in the Ashtanga tradition is this was just the particular, and I'm not calling any, anybody in particular out, but it was a fascinating exchange because the more you showed, the more she doubled down. And and that may not be a fair moment in this podcast to even bring up because I don't know if you, that was the majority of exchanges or you had a lot of them or, you know, the resistance that you met, because I will say that people On this call, most of them are pretty experienced yoga teachers, and if not yoga teachers, you know, long-time yoga practitioners. And they're here because I'm having these multidisciplinary conversations in which we are exploring truth, some truth, a truth, the truth, for you know, truth with a lowercase d. And <laughs> I think that it goes without saying for most of us, not least because of what you offered to this body of work, that there are so many variations, you know, within skeletons. So I guess I maybe want to jump straight into your. And we'll go back. Let's just, let's just whipsaw this thing a little bit. Um, You're teaching to the chakras, bandhas, and mudras, and how, or at, if at all, the variations in a skeleton and in a body will necessarily change or affect the way someone does experience their own energetic body. And maybe to answer that question, you could just start with your kind of Cliff's Notes definition of chakras, mudras, bandhas. And we'll put, you know, that this recent article you've edited in the show notes, because it's so good and will be a great reminder slash primer for lots listening. Uh,
1: Well, my understanding of the chakras is that they're that they're extensions of consciousness that descend down from the brain and that they guide the formation of the body as an embryo. And then they become less able to change the body as we age, but they're still influencing the physiology of the body. And so in yogic theory is that you're born at a certain time and place to a certain family at a certain era of time that is going to allow some, not all, it's going to allow some of the samskatas, your habits of thought and behavior that were not completed or frustrated or you're still attached to, it's going to allow some of those to be satisfied in this lifetime. And then you have to enter into uh, a body and then you have to compromise a little bit. You have to compromise with the genetic pool that you're entering into. You have to compromise with the social pool that you're entering into. And so there's something going to be new about an incarnation. You're not going to just pick off from episode seven of when you died and now it's episode eight and it's completely recognizable. There's going to be a change that now you're in different circumstances in the body that you grew was constrained by two things. The genetic pool that you're trying to mold in in, in a crude way, it's like, what's the texture of the clay you're working with? Mm, I'm not a potter, but I know that there are differences in texture and all that kind of stuff. And so you've got, there's there's only so many things you can do with this type of clay and you can do different things with this type of clay. And now your energy body comes into that and goes like, oh, okay, I've got this pattern I wanna create but I have to compromise because of the clay I'm working with. And so there is a there is a um, c- competition, there is an influence of each other, a mutual influence of what the organs of perception and physiology that you're trying to create, to create the body that can help you enact and finish your karma, is going to have to compromise some up with the family and the genetics that you're in, and then that grows your body. And so whether or not, Because of that, your skeletal variation that you experience changes how you experience energy. That might be true, but I'm just saying that the cause and effect of relationship is the opposite way. Mm. It was the energy pattern in the chakras that took a single cell that you could hardly see in a microscope, grew it to 70 trillion cells and now coordinates their functions. That was first. But I do think that, you know, just like when you're building a house, you can make big changes in the beginning when there aren't any walls up. But every wall that goes up, every window that you put in, now you're restricting what you can do with that house as you bring it to completion. Mm -hmm. And so I do think when you get to, I have a finished body that was subconsciously programmed by my karma, my samskaras, and the compromises I had to make, Mm -hmm. now that body's pushing back on you.
0: Mm -hmm
1: you you had a lot of malleability when it was being formed but once you reach to a certain state of maturity you're sort of trapped in the house that you built
0: Mm -hmm. and let me ask a question about that because are you saying then that that original cell which if it if it does have a place which based on everything you're saying and what i also believe it, it isn't necessarily locatable but for the sake of argument it sort of originates from the brain, in the brain, of the brain, is the brain, and that is necessarily synonymous with will, with, you know, sort of seventh, eighth, ninth, you know, chakras. Didn't Motoyama talk about the chakras beyond the seventh? Weren't there like, there's some well, theories there's, about eight, nine? there are
1: chakras in at least three dimensions, depending on how you count dimensions. right. You know, chakras are multidimensional. So in a sense, there's chakras above you. There are images in Buddhist traditions of many heads being ahead, ahead of the Buddha, but that's symbolic. The actual chakras are layered physical, astral, and causal at each level. Yeah. And that's reflected in what's called the nadi in the body, that there's four levels to nadi, And you go all the way up the spine and open up the physical dimensions of of, of, of the chakras. but you have to do that again to open up the lower uh, astral body it's called and that's the second layer of Shishunna. then you got to do that again to open up the the more subtle astral uh layer it's called Nadi and then finally you get into what's called the causal body of beliefs and ideas and that's the central channel up through all of the nadis so there are dimensions of existence to the chakras and it's and um in Just an aside, Paramahansa Yogananda says that the original cell, the original cell that was the fertilization exists now, right, in your medulla oblongata. That cell still exists. Right.
0: And so that is then the best that in this manifest... Well, I was actually going to ask the question. That is what the best we can in this manifestation uh, realize the the our dharmic purpose as mediated through the karmas as um, intersected in the body as the clay gets molded and the house gets built is that basically what you're saying
1: yeah there's a compromise between purusha and prakriti all the time it's not one or the other it isn't physicalism or idealism or subjective reality versus objective reality. It's Prakriti and Purusha all the way down. Uh, and and so there's an influence. There's a back and forth influence between what spiritual, willful intention you have and the pushback of which dimension of physicality are you encased in. And Dr. Mothayama writes, Yogananda writes about it as well, but Dr. Mothyama is what I'm most familiar with. As you rise up in consciousness and you become aware of your astral form and body and that you can actually inhabit that and interact with other astral beings, your thoughts and your will have a much more immediate impact on your environment. You can physically change your environment if you if you gather together. Dr. Modiyama says this explicitly. A group of people with strong intention in the astral world, if they get together and concentrate on something, they can literally move mountains and change their physical environment. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen except you know minutely, immeasurably in the physical dimension. And Dr. Mathiomas says this continues as you go up higher into the causal dimensions. It's like the difference between what you think and how it manifests is like this. Mm-hmm. So in the physical dimension, there's a huge inertia of time and resistance between what you want to create with your efforts and your will and your mind. And the body that you're in, the resistance is huge, as anyone who's had a body and has habits they'd like to change has experienced. It's huge resistance. It gets easier and easier if you can rise out of the physical body.
0: Yeah. And so... I, I want to. So, we've talked about the chakras, and I want to pause for a minute on our way into the mudras and bandhas as you sort of kind of blow out this particular theory. Be, and the reason I'm asking it this way is because I do think that one of the great benefits of work like yours is to name and define these more esoteric functions. Consciousness, you know, you, as I said earlier in the podcast, the Yin classes. I don't know if chakras, mudras, bandhas are necessarily like woven into these classes. And I think the more more we can name and identify these internal experiences as X, Y, or Z, the more benefit we can create for ourselves and for others, especially as teachers. So. The question is you talk about these three bodies it's the astral causal and physiologic no astral physical right physical so those three bodies are you talking about the chakras being again sort of mediated through those bodies via practices of mudra and banda or how do you teach that and what do you address in your well your book too which i haven't had the chance to read (laughs) The the latest one. The first
1: one, obviously. It's all borrowed ideas. These ideas come from from uh, Yogananda, Motayama, even Rudolf Steiner or Western mystic. Um, but specifically, Dr. Motayama spoke to this more directly in the way that you phrased the question. And for him, it's the chakras mediate the energy flow between dimensions. That's what chakras do. That's what chakras are. So the idea is that if you can conserve your physical um, energy, so they're not just pouring out of you, being used up in sensual experience, if you actually conserve and hold them back, well, energy never dies. It just changes its manifestation. And so the theory is, again, straight from Dr. Motiyama, the theory is that if you can conserve this outward flow of energy, and harbor it into the spine, into specific chakras, then those chakras will then has to do something with this energy. And that if you conserve it and you have the intention, then the chakra will start to first be called purify and then eventually open. And what that means is all the chakras are functioning in the astral dimension now, or you wouldn't have any desires or you wouldn't have any emotions. Those are not physical things. All the chakras are active in the causal dimensions, or you wouldn't have questions or moral concerns or want to know. So they're already functioning, but we can't enter into those realms of our emotions, our thoughts, and our desires very easily. We sit with therapists. Please tell me what's going on inside me because I don't know what's going on. Well, the yogic theory is, is that, well, you can know what's going on, but you've got to You've got to stop exhausting the flow of energy down and out. You've got to conserve it. And it's not to suppress anything. It's that if you conserve it, then eventually a chakra is going to become more active, meaning you will be able to consciously be able to observe the astral dimensions of a chakra and eventually the entire astral body as a whole. And then you won't have to guess why do I do this? Why do I have this happen? Why, uh, why was I born to this family? You won't have to guess. You'll be able to see it. And then you go, oh. And then that same process of conserving the astral energies and holding within you isn't suppression. It's to awaken the function of wisdom and understanding so you can understand what made it motivated you. And then from that, what motivates others about how they get trapped in certain desires and emotions and how that translates into physical manifestation. So the idea is that the chakras convert energy from one dimension to the other all the time. What it means to awaken a chakra is to be able to consciously do that in reverse, conserve the physical energy to awaken the ability to feel and see directly, the astral emotional desiring realm of that we are encased in and then compare do that again with the causal realm and beyond into purusha
0: so yoga asana is something that i want to double back on back to your sort of historical description of like the 80s 70 years ago that Modern yoga expanded into what we now think of it as, which is a class, a person at the front who says some things. And 90% or more, I think now classes all have like modern music, typically with lyrics. So that's like what we have here. Yeah, exactly. The dance. I think that's what it is, right? I think so much of yoga is this um, yoga practice. Yoga, modern yoga is, 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 um, is a way to dance. That's my thinking on it. Vinyasa especially. <laughs> and so and so if the OG yoga documented or not was yinish. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> and it was you know presented by these Wisdom holders, these wisdom seekers, these people from wisdom traditions, such as they were and are, they were a counterpoint to the activities, the physical, physiological activities of society. Like, in other words, life's long and hard, you know, like your back breaks, you know, you get headaches, you don't sleep well, you know, whatever it is. Was the original yoga just intended to to soothe? Those stresses?
1: Well, I think so. I just think that that was just part of the, I think that was part of their agenda the, is to, Dr. Motiyama would put it, if you can harmonize the flow of chi in your physical body, it's going to be much, much easier to withdraw into the awareness of the spine. You know, if your energy, if your physical body is just gripping and holding, literally holding the energy in your body, not letting it flow in or out, just anxious anticipation. Then it's going to be very difficult to withdraw, and so I think that I think that the modern uh, form of yoga is brilliant. I think that um, that it evolved to meet the needs of a sedentary, headbound society, and there's a reason why it's popular, and there's a reason why it works, and it's a reason why because where where do you go to dance? It's not a pickup strobe light bar. Well, it used to be. You would go dance around the maypole or you would do country folk dancing. Totally. And it wasn't, you know, how hot sexy can you be? Right. It was like let's just have fun and let's just dance around to a rhythm. And so to me, I I I do not find it belittling to draw a small comparison to music in a vinyasa class, being the, the modern folk dance. It's just more scientific and it's a more complete exercise. I think that's a necessary aspect of being a physical body because we're constantly in conflict with human beings have moral and intellectual concerns that don't bother animals. They don't bother animals. Animals don't have moral or intellectual or political concerns. They don't, human beings do. And that's at odds with, you know, your physical impulses are being constantly checked by these higher concerns. And your body is literally, I believe, a battlefield between your higher spiritual ambitions and the genetic pool that you've had to work with, the animalistic instincts that you that you needed to survive. And I think it was brilliant that the Bhagavad Gita was constructed on a battlefield. And Yogananda's interpretation of the Gita is that there are actually three levels to this battlefield, and it's happening all the time. And so I think that uh, yoga, modern yoga, yang yoga, music-inspired yoga, I think it's a brilliant um, half-conscious, go-with-it. Innovation. uh, um, Adaptation of yoga to the needs of the society.
0: Totally. And it just keeps going. I mean, it continues... yeah, the innovations continue.
1: And I, I was, don't think people need theories. I mean, people need some theories for Yin. At least they used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, exactly. You know, no one needs a theory for how Yang Yoga works. Right. It's like I, you do fe- class, I sweat, I feel good. That's all I need.
0: I was going to say, and 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 I and I, and I I've said this in, on this podcast before. I mean, I think there's a couple of brilliant aspects to modern to to, to yoga generally, to mod, to yoga as we. Um, a, a, as it continues to be experienced and expressed and taught in these classes. And w- one of them is just the, it's just so simple to link any movement of the breath with any movement of the body. And that actually, that's actually a little facile because generally speaking, any yoga teacher, no matter how many hours they've been trained, understands that an inhale occurs <laughs> best practice you know when the body goes up and an exhale occurs when it goes down john schumacher who you might know is my longtime teacher as i told you in my email um <laughs> people would say like, how did he say it the people would say like well how do i breathe when do i breathe he was like breathe just <laughs> breathe, you know, just breathe. And so to me, the idea that we're sort of consciously defining movements of breath in the con in in a 60 minute period where movement is occurring is just uh, it's just where else does that happen really? And then the other thing is shavasana. Yeah I mean, there what else where else are you gonna go and do whatever you do and then give the body an opportunity to relax absorb be in corpse but you know whatever right
1: oh I agree completely I mean just picking up on your mention of shavasana evidently from what I glean from newspapers the ability to sleep and get enough sleep is a big thing these days and yet you can go to a yoga class sleep on a hard dirty floor with 30 other strangers and fall asleep it seems to me that that's a good thing Totally,
0: <laughs> completely. And I think I have that on my website, that for me, anxiety has always been a deal. And uh, and just the first Shavasana I ever had really in this basement, and funny, I had only male teachers in the beginning, not women, at Integral Yoga in New York City, and just lying there in Shavasana with all these other people. And it was, as I've said before, like this multi-layered, multi-time based experience because it's like first minute oh we're doing this whoa second minute oh my god we're still we are still doing this and I feel whatever and then minute three minute four minute seven it's like this is safe and this is amazing and we're all just kind of like what you were saying with Dr. Motiyama like I'm not saying we were all such advanced beings in the astral plane but we're all doing something in the astral plane at that moment something's happening and if we're all in Shavasana all doing that the law of unintended consequences anyway is what I felt like, whoa, I can't believe I'm in a group doing this safely, you know?
1: Yeah, I would just say that's not the law of unintended consequences. I'd say it's the law of you can't predict what what the consequences of the relaxation will be. Yes. It, it is an intention to relax. And I do think true. That you, are, you are withdrawn. You have, at least for this much period of time, you are consciously and I think that's key you're consciously participating in sensory withdrawal and to do it in public where normally you have to be on your guard in a good way or a bad way I think is for a lot of people that's a big experience and um I think that that kind of puts your finger in touch. That if that if you do that enough times, then eventually you, get, you develop an interest in pranayama and meditation. I think it's inevitable.
0: Inevitable, completely. That's, and and it's funny. In my these first experiences I had in integral yoga, we would have we would you know practice shavasana, and then when we get up and do some pranayama and chanting, and I had to leave as soon as I got up. My thigh bones, my fight or flight was like. Get the hell out of here! <laughs> <laughs> you are way too scared for this. I couldn't do it in the very beginning. My it was it, you know I, as I told you, I've just experienced this pretty this huge trauma. And in the first week or two after, I would say like my my brain and my legs have to be in motion. I can't like they have to be in motion. And now I just want to go in the woods. Back to your thing about us being conscious animals. I just kind of want to go be an animal in the woods where I don't have these cares and concerns. You know. So it's What's interesting. That?
1: It sounds to me that your experience at integral yoga was the tail end of the of the era that I was describing, that if one, if you wanted yoga, it wasn't at the gym. You had to go to a semi-religious organization to even get yoga. And of course, the Hatha yoga was considered just a step on the ladder to now do pranayama and now chant and meditate and meditate. That was you know hatha yoga was just a step on this ladder, and the yoga happened to be a gentle, easy approach. Now we've taken just that step here, the very first step, and we've really, um, uh, I think, expanded its application. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly, and I I want to get back in the to yes to all of those things it, to to the scientific research, to the research and and or scientific research, both, I'm sure, social research and scientific that you brought to your early classes in addition to the bag of bones and, you know, the suitcase of bones, in addition to these other things. And because you were saying earlier, you know, studies show that...
1: Yes, yeah, so, right. you got so, my attention. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's talk about that attention getting in this context of modern yoga, the bringing of the research to the practice. You might even, in this, if you don't mind, for the audience who doesn't know who Dr. Motayama was, I mean, we've mentioned him many, many times in this conversation already. But let's talk a little bit about, I'd love to pull out some Steiner stuff, but let's just hold on Dr. Motoyama and some of the research you brought in that um, you feel was a contribution to this expansion of these practices of yoga.
1: Well, Dr. Motoyama was Japanese and he had two PhDs. One was in uh, philosophy and then the second PhD was in physiological psychology. And he, uh, he had had mystical experience since he was a boy. He'd been trained by two women. His his biological mother uh, had a guru who was also a woman, and this woman trained them both, Dr. Motoyama and Dr. Motoyama's mother. So from a very young age, he was exposed to chanting and meditation and other ascetic practices. And so he had already had many mystical experiences in his 20s. And so he went to school because he wanted to see – how can I integrate or explain or get people to be interested in these personal mystical experiences that I have? And at first he did philosophy. And then he came to the realization that philosophy doesn't have much of an impact on the larger population. Studies show that <laughs> philosophy doesn't have much impact. <laughs> so then he just switched over and says, OK, we'll take we'll go the science route then. We will. And he became a physiological um uh, psychologist, He knows all about the, you know, how to monitor the body's different changes in mental states and all that kind of thing. And, and so he was, uh, you know, from 1950 to, 90, to the early 2000s, he was an active scientist doing research and publications about, um, you know, the chakras, the mind, the body. And what you're referring to is that one of his angles of research was is the idea that there's an energy system in the body that's, of course, the foundation of acupuncture and is a corollary to Hatha yoga. Does Is that true? Is that just a feudalistic superstition or is there any scientific modern evidence for it? And then he found in his research and could document and did re- replicable studies and developed instruments and devices that, yeah, there is a, there is a uh, electrically conductive uh, system of water channels in the body and these water channels are in what's in the fascia of the body and um i brought that explanation to why does it feel good to twist your knee joint around or why why yoga why didn't why didn't the yogis just do push-ups and sit-ups like everyone else around the planet why are they doing this Right. Like, what's the point?
0: Why tanasan I think about that all the time. Why sit on the floor and forward fold, like <laughs> exactly. for real, you know?
1: Yeah, exactly. But then when you take this fascia, um, the meridians flowing through the fascia, and how that's changed, measurably changed, when you stress fascial tissue and then release it, um, that gave you an explanation for, oh, that's why these guys developed a system of exercise that was focused on the joints. It isn't that aerobics isn't important. It isn't that physical strength isn't important. It's just that the the fascia is most bound and most dense at the joints, and that's where restrictions to the flow of energy tends to occur. Where the fascia is the densest, uh, it stops the flow of energy, and that eventually can lead to disease, or in the very short term, it leads to disharmony and discomfort. And so it was brilliant that they would do all these weird things. And it wasn't to look cool or develop your biceps. It was to put stress on where we had the most fascia in the body. And then if you look at the research on what, how fascia responds to stress, you find that if you do a rhythmic pull on fascia, like in a young activity, the fascia actually gets thicker and stronger, which is exactly what you want if you're a basketball player or a boxer or a football player. You want that. But if you're actually trying to relax the tension in the fascia so your movement and your mobility can come back, then fascia, if you want the fascia to respond, you've got to put a moderate stress on it and you've got to wait. And then the fascia will go through this what's this creep effect where it'll go like this. But if you just pull on it, you can't hurry the process. It's kind of like going into someone and saying, "I don't have time for a seventy-five minute massage. Can you do everything in ten minutes?" <laughs> You're right? Exactly. Well, a, fast, a fast massage is not in any way the same as a slow, deep massage. You cannot speed up a slow, deep, relaxing massage. It's 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 an oxymoron. Well, the fascia, the deep fascia around the joints, and fascia permeates all your body, but particularly around the joints where the postures are focused, the postures, if you analyze them, are incredibly clever leverages to stress those fascia. And you don't need to be aggressive and you don't need to bounce. Just put a leverage on it and have the patience and the calmness to wait for it. And then when you lay down, you have that rebound effect of, wow, that feels really good. And that's where the meridian theory comes in, because you could say, well, I could understand if you want to be a better golfer, you should loosen up your back so you can take a bigger swing. But why, when I lie down, do I feel the spreading sense of well-being? Because all I've done was stress fascia here or here. Why a spreading sense of well-being? And that's where the meridian theory comes in, saying that, you know then you get into well the the energy, energy channels are flowing through the fascia and that you're going to have natural obstructions in different parts of your body that's unavoidable of living and if you re, if you stress that it isn't just this area gets released here at your chest or your back it now allows a flow of energy to reestablish itself and that that energy in and of itself is a sense of well-being what we call a sense of well-being is an even flow of that energy and you go like oh so now i have a scientific theory that explains why did they do asanas in the first place why might i want to try to do long asanas in a relaxed way and why does it feel so good when i'm done you've got this this fascia theory meridian theory that dr motayama developed did all of that
0: yeah Totally. And before we get into the archetypes, because I think that might be a nice place to end, you know, and I apologize, do I apologize to the audience? (laughs) I don't know. know? (laughs) <laughs> Who am I saying sorry to? <laughs> um, uh, you know, because it's, it, it, I, was, I was so, as, I mean, always engrossed when I uh, talk to you and listen to you teach, but uh, these archetypes are really cool. Archetypes in general are cool. But before we go there, I want to ask a quick question to put a pin in what you've just described to see if I'm tracking you and your body, this original cell Is the source of the energy flow through your body that's sort of moving down with gravity from the Shiva, Shakti into the, no, sorry, Shiva prana into the Shakti prana. That's what you're, right? That as it moves down, like through and into the center of gravity, the pelvis, the legs, even the bones probably have this sort of strong gravitational pull for this energy. Is that true
1: well maybe when you're when you're born but in the fluid environment that you're in gravity mm. is negligible
0: okay it, it okay. has an
1: influence but um
0: oh yeah th- i mean once you're born oh, like yeah. once you're born yeah yeah so, so so i'm i'm just thinking of life in general and i'm thinking about how these these practices that you're describing this um this gentle tension and waiting of the pra- of the yoga asanas of the practices in your physical body to manipulate into a twist or again a backbend or a side or whatever it is any all the things if you if you keep doing the practices and don't wait for that moment when this consciousness from let's just say I know it's not just above but you're sort of describing it in this physical plane as somewhere in the brain if you jump out of that too fast, do you then d- does that energy just come back up into the brain and you and then you just you're just sort of ping-ponging back and forth between desire to improve, desire to change, desire, you know, what, what whatever and change itself and like and and unobstructing, freeing those obstructions, freeing the flow?
1: Well, I think that I think that there are there are benefits from just a purely mechanical practice, even if your mind is distracted. Okay, that's that's part of being a physical being. In fact, Dr. Motoyama says that's one of the advantages of being a physical being Mm -hmm. is that our body does not immediately respond to every little flicker of our emotions and our thoughts because we would be a mess. Right. The inertia of the body where it's like, you know, you get a shock. It takes time to come down out of the shock. If you get happy, it takes more than one irritation to bring you down out of that. that. That inertia of the physical body is actually a benefit until we're more highly developed and have more control over our emotions. You know, it's like that inertia, as you should, Dr. Motoyama and Yogananda, I, I believe. Talk about it is a blessing to be born in the physical body for all the drawbacks that are, you know, of physical existence and the pain and the aging and the illness and the suffering and the death that everybody talks about. There is a certain spiritual benefit to having that you can just do mechanical things and it will affect you. Would it be better if we could do everything in our whole day with absolute mental focus on what we're doing? Well, yes, of course, but you're asking the impossible. and so. It is different to do um, yoga mechanically and just jump up and and do yoga distracted while you're thinking about something else. But it's still beneficial. It's it's much 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 more beneficial to think about your problems or whatever while you're doing a mechanical practice. And that's not a failure. That just means that you know you're you didn't take that time to also make it a, a mental practice, but that's Mm -hmm. not failure. I don't need to, I can take drugs and they're going to affect me whether or not I'm mentally with it or not. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. It's, I really, really appreciate that answer because I think what I, where I was going is what happens when you do this thing and don't wait for it. You know, don't wait to observe the thing Whatever it is, the the sort of freeing of the obstructions, you know what sort of happens next? I mean I've been thinking a lot about just the accruing of patterns over time, the like just the sort of you know as I've rounded the corner over fifty and have experienced a ton of my own physiologic you know human cha- human you know changes. I see inertia as a stronger pull over time and I, it's fascinating to me because there was a time when earlier, and then I see my kids just, just they're indestructible, it seems, you know, these <laughs> kids do the sports, they do the stuff, they do the whatever. And it's just amazing to watch. And I'm, I'm thinking a lot about the reconciling of those, the, the, the ebbing and flowing, I guess, of energies and, 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 and wondering I mean, I guess my, I guess the thing I like to say is like gravity always wins, you know it just it, it seems to, anyway. It seems to really have a pull toward the pelvis and a pull toward this place where your body is managed on in the 3D plane. But I think I'm giving it too much focus or importance as I'm processing your answer to the question.
1: Is there a question?
0: No. I was just commenting. <laughs> and then, and, and I'd love to get into the, well, maybe there was, but probably not. But the, let's talk about the archetypes and how that's helpful for people as we kind of like, you know, land the plane and offer these, um, you know, few, but, but very powerful writings that you've had over the years. I mean, it's, I, I, I cannot recommend, and I'm sure lots of people on the call have already read your yin book, but these two chakra pieces, the book, and then your uh, more recent um, paper, uh, I think are really worthy of consideration. So let's talk about these archetypes and maybe just talk a little bit, if you could, we, I did have a question earlier about the the bandhas and the mudras. So I got a bunch of things, archetypes, bandhas, mudras. Let's conclude with that.
1: Okay. Well, archetypes is the idea that basically there's five families of yin postures and two families of yang postures. And to me, what it helps a yoga teacher do is is that what do I do with the idea of skeletal variation what am I supposed to do with that okay now you've told me and I believe you this person that person and that person they're never going to do lotus posture so what should they do well then you ask yourself well what is lotus posture if your bones allowed it what muscle group would be affected by lotus posture. And that's the essence of it. The archetypes are, there are basically five families of postures and those postures are grouped by, they affect the same muscle groups. And so you have 14 skeletal segments and you need to know that if you're going to dig down on which variation to give to someone. But the 14 skeletal segments just pretty much determine what you can or cannot do. Now it's the, the archetypes are about well, what can you do? If you can't do lotus posture, what am I missing? If the classic lotus posture is skeletally impossible, then am I am I doomed to be unhealthy? It's like is an organ being, you know, suck dry of its chi. Like, what do I do? Well, what you learn is that. There is a one of the five families of yin postures. Of, well, it's all postures, really. One of the five archetypes of yin is the stretching of your glute and your IT band. And lotus posture is just one of several variations that do that. So, yeah, you're never going to do lotus posture. But within the other suggested variations of that archetype, we can find one or two. That will stretch the same muscle group that lotus posture does. So, no, you're not left out in the cold. You're not going to die early because you couldn't do (laughs) lotus posture. (laughs) Yeah, right. Rather than a
0: miserable, lonely death because of lack of lotus. Yeah.
1: So, rather than you ruin your knees and frustrate yourself trying to do lotus posture, what is the muscle fascial group? Because the fast, the energy is thrown through the fascia. What fascial group? Is lotus posture affecting on those who can do it, and it's it's in our It's the first archetype. It's the shoelace archetype. Lotus posture is considered in the shoelace cross the leg family. Anytime you do this, you're doing a shoelace. Mm-hmm. There's five, six, seven variations of shoelace. Yeah, we can find one no matter what your bones are. We can find one of them or two, maybe three. We can find one or two of them that will affect the same fascial group as the lotus posture so no you're not going to die young or have a brain hemorrhage because you can't do lotus posture and that's the essence of the archetypes that there are only so many muscle groups in the body it's not infinite it's actually quite limited that's what the archetypes address but what do you do if you accept the fact that there's skeletal variation that means certain postures are impossible or unsafe to do then what am i missing Well, you're missing whatever muscle groups associated with that pose. We have substitutes.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. We haven't talked about Iyengar yoga at all in this. Well, I've talked about very few other yoga practices here. But, you know, as I told you in my email, I belatedly became an Iyengar yoga teacher. I just decided to get that sort of, or wanted to tried and succeeded in getting that certification in the late teens. And one of the things I really enjoy about that you know, methodology, despite I think uh, its um, reputation, (laughs) is that there are just infinite, hey, you know what, the thing is, reputation can be managed. It could be easily be managed, and it, you know, so it can be, it could be. Um, And, uh, but but there are just infinite variations for poses in what you learn as a teacher in this particular methodology, what I've been doing, you know, especially in COVID, just looking at these 2D screens, for three more three years and then some is to look at these shapes and most of my students can't do you know Padma lotus pose so you just I hadn't even thought about these archetypes you know but but you just look and you go okay well how can I recreate that shape for these other people who I know have X Y or Z limitations and so it's a, it's just such a sensible way of going about it using archetypes or Iyengar method whatever it is but as teachers to
1: no, yeah, if you I, I don't look t- at the back of Iyengar's book, on Yoga. And if you actually do this exercise, if you actually write down all the external rotation poses, which we call shoelace, if you actually write them down as he presents them in his five year program, it's a logical progression from a little bit of external rotation to more external rotation to more external rotation. Exactly. The same thing you can see in forward bends and other postures. It's actually So what you can gain from that book, which is in many ways has never been surpassed. Yeah, not right. What you can gain from that book is what you said. Here are several variations of this archetype. All you need to change, in my view, is the idea that when you're a good person, you'll do them all. Totally. That needs to change. But that laying out on a buffet platter for you, the variations of this archetype, I don't, you know, I, don't, I think you could buy that book and you wouldn't have to buy another house in a book. I, I
0: I would agree with you. I think it's great, except yours, except me in yoga and yoga. <laughs> 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 you know, Paul, it is such a delight to talk to you. Do we, should you drop? The mic on the chakras and I keep asking about the bandhas and mudras. Should we do that and you then close drop it? the
1: mic right here. I think we
0: <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And then people can read your thing on the bandhas and mudras. It's just been such a pleasure to talk to you. And I, as always, leave with so many other questions. Just great to connect. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your um, experience. It's
1: great to connect to you with after all these years. It's, uh, you know, just having longevity in yoga I think is changing. And in spite of what we discussed earlier before the recordings, the, the ups and downs of practice, the ups and downs of teaching, the ups and downs of the business of teaching, navigating your way through that, there's not a lot of um archetypes for us to follow. That's and true. I think that uh, you know, if you if you stick your if we stick it out through these changes and realize that other people are going through these changes, as you started this with. Having a vocabulary that describes these generalities is really useful. And I think that podcasts like What You're Doing, having these varied discussions with different people, we're developing concepts and vocabularies that there was no need for them in the past. But I think there's a big need for them now because the idea that yoga is a profession is new And I think it's useful to to have these conversations and see the commonalities.
0: Totally. And there's so many more than there are variances, or even if there are lots of variances, the commonalities are worth um, underscoring, at least in this body of work. So thanks for joining me in that project. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me and features original music from my former band, Governess. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, on weekswell.com and have a newsletter. And we're also now most recently on Substack, exploring in as many media as we can, the conversation, practice, and community of being your best self. If you have any ideas on The Weeks Well, about guests, about feedback on the show, anything you'd like to know or talk about or dialogue about, hit us up at hello at weekswell.com. We love the feedback. We love the conversation. We hope to see you next time for the next episode of The Weeks Well next week.